Good evening, everybody. My name is Ash. I, for those of you who don't know, am a tarot and Norse rune reader and teacher. And I love all things metaphysical. But since I have Scandinavian in my history, hello, Anya. I love sharing with people really unique, weird things about cultures and their history and the things they do, specifically the Norsemen. So I'm going to talk to you tonight about the deaths in Norse history and what the Norsemen would do or Scandinavians would do um, with their loved ones when they passed away, what their beliefs were in terms of what they called spirits, what have you, and then uh, where they believed they would go. And then I thought we'd finish off by talking about some warrior spirits because, you know, I can't keep things on track, so. <laughs> okay, so they believed that the Norse, when their people would die in Scandinavia, they believed that their people would end up in four different places generally, okay? So one is Valhalla, which most people have heard of if they've watched any Marvel movies or any of that, and it's usually where the where men would go who would be like you know the viking warrior men right that would go at raiding those would be where they would go to be in the hall of valhalla with odin who is the main god of the norse pantheon and then we also have the realm of hell h-e-l which is ruled by a woman by that same name and she is considered to be Loki's daughter who he gave birth to when he was impregnated by a giant. Okay, so he gave birth to her, to Fenrir the wolf, to Jorgamond the giant serpent, and uh, yeah, <laughs> to make things interesting. So they could go to hell. And that's where actually a lot of regular everyday people went. And then there was the realm of Ran, which isn't discussed as often. And Ran is Edgar's wife, and they ruled the sea. So if you were a seaman or someone that died out in the water, you would typically go to them. Now, he's known, they're very well respected by the other gods. He's known for being very, a very lovely gentleman, and her not so much. And she's known for even bringing children under the water and drowning them. And then there's also, last but not least, Folkvener, the field of the people, which is where Freya 
the goddess Freya, which is a fertility goddess, where the people would go there. Hello, Stacy. Hello, Chanel Ann. I love your name. I hope I'm saying it properly. So they would go to one of these four places. And really, people didn't really seem to know. But it's kind of interesting because I'll get into the history of where, into those a little bit more in a little bit. But I wanted to talk to you more about the everyday Norsemen and where they believed, like what they believed in when it came to the spirits that they could deal with possibly. So they have, um, from 13th century CE in Iceland, they have evidence that comes from funerary rites that people practiced that kept them and protected them from spirits that walked after death. So that's generally, it's one of two spirits that they would be likely to deal with, okay? So the first one is called a Hugbui, and it's a soul who remained at his or her burial mound. So the, as long as you didn't mess with their burial mounds, they left you alone for the most part. And then we have the Draugr, and, um, this is the one who's known for walking after death and they're the ones who are likely they're more considered malicious and going to come after people just because they're in a bad state or like in a bad mood or because uh, they felt their family members or what have you their their area didn't uh show them due justice when they passed away which could be taken as well with the things they would offer like offerings they would leave so it was actually more common for regular everyday Viking people to originally burn, you know, to, to do cremation ceremonies. Now we know of it as sort of, you know, the Viking ship being set on fire and that did happen, of course, but it's considering how more well known it is, it wasn't actually as common just because it would be left to people who had boats, right? And they were expensive, so not everybody could afford them. But of course that was that was obviously something that they did as well. So they did some really interesting rituals, the regular everyday people to keep the the spirit of um of the drugger from coming back and coming home basically, because a lot of times they would come back to their house. And sometimes they are even buried in the house, right? Like on the property, I should say. So obviously back then there was no funeral homes or things like that. So a lot of times they were buried at the home, at the homestead, but it was left up to the family to actually prepare the body. So it was their responsibility to make sure that they followed the rights of the person who passed away. And um, like I said, the cremation was most common in 6th century BCE. But we do know that there was other ones as well, obviously. So we do have burial sites, which have obviously been founded archaeologically. But it's interesting because they know that, like, say, for someone who was really poor, and they considered that if they couldn't afford to, say, leave a hammer or something really expensive in the home or something that would be needed that they couldn't afford to change over, like, you know, to replace, they would leave something that was of importance to them. So it was kind of like, you know, they would leave something of 
personal value to them. And they be more likely to be left alone by the spirits than say a rich person who is being just a cheap, a cheap so-and-so that I'm not going to bother to say. So they would for seven days after a person's death have a funeral feast that was held okay and this is where they would actually bring about the different family members or whoever and depending on what the person who passed away wanted they would then give them away those items or leave it to the family's discretion obviously the interesting thing is a lot of times when people hold the wakes, right, where people would come in and look at the dead and it's, we consider it a form of closure for ourselves. Um, originally, a wake was meant to be held in a person's home. And it was because we didn't have the medical technology that we do today. It was to make sure the person was actually dead before they buried them. So they would have what would be called a wake where people would come in and keep an eye on the person to make sure they're actually passed away. Hello, Monique. Hello, Alina. Hello, Angelina. Hello, Jay. Hello, Social Contagion. I like your name. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> now that I'm done. In order to prevent a ghost from coming back, right? We ha they, they had certain rituals they did, which is kind of funny. So they had head wrappings and it wasn't anything Egyptian like by any means. It was literally just a wrap that would go around the, the, like the dead person's eyes. So that way, if they did rise up from the dead, they wouldn't be able to see to come home. And another thing they would do is they carry the corpse at the door feet first. And what they would do is they would sometimes sew the toes or both of the feet together, making it harder for the spirit to be able to get back home, right? And sometimes they even went to the extent of breaking the legs or ankles. And, um, and you know, in a, in a nicer way of putting it, they would tie their shoelaces together too. And then they have this thing called a corpse door, which where what it is is it's a door that's bricked up so it's it's uh covered with bricks and what they would do is the the belief was that if a corpse or a a spirit decided to come home it would it could only come back into the house through that door so the door of which it was taken out of so they break the bricks down take the corpse out feet first and then they would brick it back up so that way the corpse can come back as a ghost and they also had this thing, this is where we get knocking three times when you're visiting a home. So they would do this in order to ensure that you weren't a spirit knocking on the door. Because if it was just one knock, it was supposed to be said to be a spirit. And of course, they had talismans and like carved images that they would put in, like, you know, in and around the person. So what they would do they had like odin's head thor's hammer a lot of those like odin and stuff even though he was considered the main god of the norse gods and goddesses a lot of times they didn't especially in scandinavia they didn't really worship him they were more likely to worship thor or somebody else like freya he would be more of a more of a fertility goddess right so after the rise of christianity in the 10th and 12th ce they even used crosses that they would put across the body, like things like straw or, you know, whatever tools they had across the body, like chest. 
and they would even put Hugin and Munin, which were the two ravens that in the mythologies are with uh, Odin all the time, sit on his shoulder and they mean memory and thought. They would put little images of them as well to represent them and also the Valknut. But the Valknut, which is um, a symbol for Odin, but it's Odin's not, but that didn't come until much later as well. So we have to understand that the actual Viking age really wasn't that long before the Christians came in. So a lot of what we have written down, we have the prose and poetic Edda. And even that was written by Snorri Sturluson in the sense that, that that part of the Eddas were written by somebody who was Christianized. So it's interesting to see because that's where we actually get talking about that. Okay, so people were encouraged to live their lives. They weren't people who really focused on the passing away and what happened to them in the afterlife. It was there, but it wasn't something that they did as religiously as they did after Christianization, okay? So that's when they became more worried about what would actually happen to them afterwards. And it became important to them and their reputation. All they wanted for their afterlife was to be remembered through, you know, the the oral history and to be remembered for like the tales they could tell. But the afterlife realm of Valhalla, which we know as being Odin's realm, it combined both of the values, someone, you know, where they tell their tales and, you know, they go somewhere and they're remembered as someone who's very strong. But they, because they lived there, it was also remembered by the, the living beings. Valhalla may not have actually been as important to the pre-Viking age. So the Norse, as it was later, Scandinavia had encountered the Christian concept of heaven. And a lot of scholars like Kristen Wolf, but among many others, have actually pointed out that the name Valhalla is applied to certain rocks in southern Sweden. So it was thought to be considered the house of the dead and that the belief grew into a vision of a magnificent palace in which dead people went up in the sky, right? So it shows where the Christianization has kind of made it more what we see it as today, or so they think. Okay, so next I want to talk to you guys about um, these two warriors, which they consider shamanic warriors, but of course shaman is a loosely used word, I feel like. If you look up the definition of a shaman, it's someone who among their tribe of people, whatever type of people that would be, they would go to the afterlife and be able to come back with aid of medicine and messages for the good of the people, right? But in terms of the Norse, they believed like a lot of different shaman beliefs or tribes with shamans in them believed that a true shaman would go through whether it be a actual or like a literal or a spiritual death and rebirth, okay, as something else. And they would come back from that death, it's called like a shaman's death, with the spiritual magic or energy of their belief system. So in the case of this, <clears throat> they were they were called costume dancers. Now, what these were, were for when the people were actually fighting, like during the Viking Age, they had what was called, 
<clears throat> I'm going to totally butcher this, <laughs> but berserkers, we know that berserkers is where the, where the saying going berserk comes from. That actually means bear shirts. And then we also have the old Norse word for wolf hides. And, uh, it is, let me see if I can say it properly. Cause I know I'm not going to, mm. and it would mean for wolves. So these people were known for running around in wolf pelts or hides and bear hides, right? That's what they wore. And the idea was they were a band of warriors, basically when they would land to pillage an area, they would be the first ones to come off. So nowadays we think of the front linesmen as the ones that are going to be killed first. But these men would go literally berserk and go crazy and they would actually scare away some of their um, some of their foes, right? Of the people, because they think they're all freaking nuts. So they would literally run away. But they really were, in a sense, because they were going into a trance-like state to take over that animal's essence, right? Since it's almost like became a part of who they were. Almost like Athelia. So what happened was, they would, when they became of a age of men or age of, you know, where they would start learning more of their manly, manly roots, their fathers would give them, and this goes for all men, they would give them their warriors, uh, what do you call it? Their, oh my God, their shield. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having a brain fart today. You can tell it's getting late. And it was a big honor to have this, right? And they would use a shield in battle too. But the berserkers would go, they knew when the berserker truly tranced into the essence of the animal because they would bite and throw that shield away, which was, you know, would seem like a slap in the face, but it would show that they were taking on the animal essence. So let's see. So like I said, they were considered to be something where they would symbolically or literally have to go through like a death and rebirth where the shaman then acquires his or her powers. So they would spend a period of time when it was their right to do so. They would go into the wilderness living like their totem animal. So it would be generally it would be the wolf or the bear. And they would learn its ways obtaining their substance through hunting, gathering, and raiding in the nearest towns. But they lived in the woods, so they became like these wild animals. Excuse me. So what would happen is they literally, even though we don't technically have, you know, literal proof of how they would do this rite of passage for themselves, we know that it would be exposing themselves to extreme long periods of heat, starvation, that kind of thing, like fasting, those sort of things. And then on the battlefield, the berserker or or the other, <laughs> if I can even say it again, oh my lord, the berserker or the Ulf Hithnar would then, they would come wearing nothing but their wolf or bear pelts, go into this trance state, and that's when they would bite people in hand-to-hand -hand combat, so to speak. So the biting or casting away of their shields is a reminder of their ultimate identity and showing that it is no longer a man and they are now an animal. So the Germanic warrior shamans are occasionally depicted with spirit wives 
in the case among the Valkyries of female attending spirits of Odin. So you can see if you, um, this is something, it's very interesting. There's a man on YouTube. There's quite a few of them, but they are, the one is an archaeologist and the other one is actually a professor, but I'm not talking about the professor. His name is Erith Hegler and he's, um, or Erith Hegler. And he does archaeological evidence type videos of the different belief systems or the different mythologies, you know, different characters, different things we think of, especially in the new age community where they kind of, they kind of romanticize and make things a lot more magical and pretty than they actually are, or they actually were for the people back then. And he kind of brings truth to it, right? With what facts they do have, which isn't a lot. But um, then what he had talked about during, and I found this fascinating during a video about the Norse shamans is that for them, and this doesn't go for all tribes that have shamans, but them, they would take on a spirit wife. So when they were called to be a shaman, they would know this because a spirit would come to them, usually in the opposite sex, right? And it would literally torture them, driving them nuts to learn this rite of passage and to take this honor to the point where the person would be at a near death state and eventually they would give in and then they would take on the right as the shamans doesn't this didn't happen all the time because like i said with the berserker and ulfinar what they did was they would go into the wild and actually learn the ways of the animals which i think is amazing to me they are literally taking on the persona of their totem. So not only do you have, you know, when we look up our totem animals or our familiars or Hulia, we look at them as typical everyday, you know, characteristics that are common with our own. But with them, they actually became the embodiment of that animal. Hello, darling. How are you? So I wanted to share with you guys just some of the, like, really fascinating to me, incredible things that some of our culture and our descendants believed in. And I encourage you when it comes to your ancestors, whoever they may be, to learn some of the interesting things about them because there's so much fascinating information. And really a lot of times, like I said, I think they're romanticized and played up a lot in the New Age community. But I think in other ways, we're missing a lot. Like the you know, when we were talking about the Norse soul and the four parts of the Norse soul. We're missing so much information that's really unique to that culture. And you can see how through history, the different belief systems and as they migrated and moved, how it changed throughout time. And in some ways that's sad, but in some ways it's beautiful, right? So to me, I think it's cool. And yeah, I wanted to share that with you guys. I'll definitely be sharing more. Um, especially, I'm thinking next time I'm going to speak about wolves specifically in Norse mythology because there's about, well, I can think of five off the top of my head, five wolf characters that I think you guys would be interested in learning about. So have a nice, I don't even know what day it is, Wednesday night, <laughs> and happy full moon in Sagittarius, whoop, whoop, and I will talk to you guys soon. Bye.